Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to, wait for it, Simon Singh. Now, just before we dive into what I think is an absolute flipping cracker of an episode, we have an exciting sponsor announcement. Cue the fancy music. This episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is kindly sponsored by White Rose Maths. Now, this is actually the second time that White Rose Maths have sponsored this podcast, so I'm tempted to call them friends of the show, despite our obvious geographical cross-panelling differences. Now, the last time that White Rose Maths sponsored the show, it was on the Slice of Advice, What I Learned This Year episode, which I'd strongly recommend you check out if you haven't listened to that. And White Rose were telling us all about their wonderful, brand new, revamped mastery schemes of work for years one to eight. Now, I know what you're thinking. How can things get better than a load of free schemes of work? Well, what about if I said that White Rose are now chucking in some topic-specific assessments into the mix? Now, I'm going to be honest here. I've always been a massive fan of the White Rose scheme of work. But one thing that has annoyed me a little bit was the fact that their assessments, whilst they're absolutely superb, were termly or end-of-year assessments. And that's fine, but you get all your topics mixed into one. And what I want to know when I've taught my students something is what do they understand about this topic. So, brand new for the 2018-19 year, the White Rose team are producing a single assessment for the end of every single topic block. They're designed to support teachers in working out what children can and can't do by the end of the block, although of course teachers can use them however they choose to. That could be a low stakes quiz, it could be a homework, whatever you want. Now, just like the schemes of work, these assessments are completely free. And here's something else I really like. The assessments promote the methods and ideas that are used throughout the teaching of the schemes. So I'm talking here about concrete manipulatives, I'm talking about modeling, because that often annoys me about assessments where the questions and the methods required don't look like what the students have been taught. And if we're promoting these methods for learning, then it's very important that students are assessed on them as well so they get a chance to practice that. Um, if you're interested in getting hold of these um, excellent topic-specific assessments, then you just need to head over to the White Rose Maths website. Now, one thing is these are currently available for the first topic unit, which is place value for years one to six. But if, like me, you're a secondary teacher thinking, oh God, am I going to miss out on this? Fear not, because if you look at the year six one, flipping heck, it's hard. I mean, it, got, it never ceases to amaze me the complexity of the maths that's happening at primary school. So even if you're not following the white rose schemes at secondary, dip in, grab the year five, maybe even the, the year four, to be honest with you, uh, place value assessments and use these with your students. It'll promote that reasoning and promote that deep understanding of mathematics. And one other thing from white rose maths, 
and this is something I've a personal experience of, um, is their training that they offer. Now, here's a fact for you. Last year, White Rose Maths delivered training to over 200 schools across England. And instead of doing one-off training sessions, White Rose are offering something called a jigsaw training package. And that's a suite of five twilight training packages that can be delivered at a time suiting the school's convenience throughout the year. Um, and those five sessions cover CPA, which I now know stands for Concrete, Pictorial and Abstract, Bar Modelling, Mathematical Talk and Questioning, Reasoning and Problem Solving, and Depth and Variation. Now, what I like about this when you get a package of support is it's not just a one-off. And I've been to some fantastic training sessions in the past and I've come out buzzing with ideas, but I haven't had that follow-up from it. And we all know what happens as busy teachers, all the things take over. And before you know it, you've forgotten to implement what you assured yourself you were going to. When you get this suite of training activities, you all get back together, you have a chance to review what you did last time, and then you learn something new on top. So I think that's absolutely fantastic. And I actually sampled the bar modeling aspect of this training when it came to Thornley, my school up in Bolton delivered by White Rose and it was absolutely fantastic. I cannot recommend it uh, highly enough. So if you are interested in the free topic specific assessments or you want to find out more about the training that White Rose Maths offer then it's all available in the same place head over to www.whiterosemaths.com and fill your boots. <laughs>
And then we take a deep dive into Simon's three projects. Who wants to be a mathematician, top top set maths and the parallel project. And I'll tell you a little bit more about those in a moment. And then finally, Simon reflects on influential research, what he has changed his mind about and what he wish he knew when it all started. Now, it will not surprise you one little bit to hear that I loved this conversation. Talking to your heroes is often fraught with disappointment, but not in this case. Simon is a wonderful storyteller and someone with a tremendous passion for maths, science and education in general. It truly was a privilege to interview him. Now, in terms of the structure of this interview, Simon will be talking about his books to start with, but then towards the end of the podcast, we will discuss three exciting projects that he's currently running, all about developing maths excellence. Now, the two projects that you can take part in right away are, firstly, Who Wants to Be a Mathematician, a free competition for six formers, all online, and the winner from the UK, now wait for this one, gets to travel to the US to compete in the international final with a prize of $5,000 going to the winner and an additional five grand to their school. I might see if I can enter this one myself. And then secondly, we have the Parallel Project, which is also completely free and is a weekly online puzzle sheet complete with videos and challenges aimed at strong year seven, eight and nine students. It's dead easy to use for teachers with nothing to mark and set. And the Parallel Project has actually just gone live today. So you can register as a teacher and get your students all set up. The Parallelogram math sheets are usually released on a Thursday, but the first one is already up so your students can tackle it straight away or wait until the weekend. And to get involved with that, just visit www.parallel.org.uk. And links to both projects are in the show notes and I would strongly recommend you check them out. And of course, Simon will be discussing them in the second half of this interview and I reflect on these further, among other things, in my takeaway at the end of the show. One final quick plug before we crack on. Obviously, if you buy some books as a result of this episode, then definitely make them Fermat's Last Theorem, The Big Bang, The Code Book, or The Simpsons and Their Mathematical Secrets. But if you have space on your bookshelf or your Kindle for one more, and you're interested in reading about 12 years of maths teaching mistakes, then maybe take a chance on my book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, available from all good and all evil bookstores. And if you've already read it and you have time to give it a quick review, that would be ideal. So long as it's a good one, of course. Anyway, I will deprive you no longer as I introduce Simon Singh. Now, just a quick word about the sound quality. It's pretty good throughout the interview, but Simon is recording on his iPhone. And as an indication of the kind of busy life Simon leads, you'll occasionally hear the vibration of an incoming message. I hope it doesn't distract too much. Oh, and when I looked at my phone at the end of the interview, not a single message awaited me. Mum and Kate, you should feel ashamed. Enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Simon. So we start, as we always do on the podcast, with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Uh, Okay, so I'd go for 1,729, which is the famous taxi cab number, if people know that story. Um, 
I think the story was um, G.H. Hardy, the great Cambridge mathematician from the kind of 1910s, 1920s, was visiting his very ill friend, Ramanujan, the, the great Indian prodigy, uh, in hospital in Putney. And uh, he kind of took his cab to the hospital, the nursing home, got out of the cab, said hello to Ramanujan. And uh, Ramanujan uh, said, oh, what was your taxi cab number? And Hardy said uh, it was 1729, 1729. Uh, not a very interesting number. And Ramanujan just completely disagreed and straight off the bat said, no, no, it's a very interesting number because it's the smallest number that's a sum of two cubes in two different ways. And the fact that Ramanujan could just pick that out of thin air, um, almost on his deathbed, um, has kind of gone down in, in mathematical folklore as a, as a kind of a, a story of great genius. Um, and about a year ago, um, actually, I think yeah, it was last summer, um, we put up a little plaque on the house where that story happened. So if people are ever in Putney, um, and ever near Colonnette Road, where Colonnette Road meets the main road, um, the first house on the right has got a little black plaque, which uh, explains that this is where that curious story about 1,729 happened. So, yeah, that's my favourite number. Nice. That's absolutely a lovely answer, that, Simon. Superb. Um, question number two. What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Um, physics. <laughs> now this this could be where we might fall out straight away here because um i have a long-running argument with with mark mccourt who i know you you know well as well and he i'm i'm a big fan of stats and he's all the kind of mechanics side and he thinks statistics shouldn't even be taught as a part of um, mathematics now are you as strong a physics advocate as that or do you see a role for both uh, um so so i, I mean so I was good at maths at school. Um, I, I wasn't the best by any stretch, and I, I really struggled with some areas. But but I was good enough at maths in order to do physics. Okay, and that's the way I, I always saw maths as a tool for doing yes. physics. Uh, now, obviously, after I, 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 I after I finished my degree, and then I did a PhD, and then I went into TV and writing, and I've I've probably spent much more time writing and and, and talking about maths than, than I do talking about physics. So I've come to love mathematics um, in its own right. And I, I appreciate maths much, much more than, than, than I, I perhaps used to. Um, but, um, but still, physics is, is what I love the most. And so applied maths, um, including statistics, um, is, is probably what I'm, I'm stronger at. Uh, the more abstract stuff, things like Fermat's last theorem, no idea what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> Super. We'll definitely be digging into that later on. And finally, and th this is a strange one, actually, because I'm not entirely sure how you're going to describe what, what job you actually do. And we'll, we'll dig into that when we get into your career. But if you weren't doing what you actually do, what would you like to do, Simon, if that makes any sense at all? Um, so, so yeah, so I, I'm not a teacher. You know, I, I have spent periods of time teaching. But let me, let me tell you what I have done. So, so. I did a degree in physics, PhD in physics. I would have loved to have been a physicist. That would have been my dream. But I could just see that I wasn't quite smart enough to um, <clears throat> to cut it at the highest levels. So then I became a TV producer and I worked at the BBC for six or seven years. And I loved that and was very proud of the things that I did at the BBC. And then from, from that, I've gone into writing and you know, very proud of, of the writing I've done as well. Um, and now I'm getting more interested in education. Um, but at no point would I have ever called myself a teacher. I've taught a bit in India. I've taught a bit in South Africa. I've taught a bit in, in, in London. 
Um, and I've given hundreds of talks, you know, all, all across the country. Uh, but I'm not a teacher. I know teaching is something, you know, I, in a way I get the easy job. I get to go to a school, kind of get kids excited about maths, uh, talk about different things. But what I'm telling them, they're not going to have to be examined on. Mm. Um, and that's the tough thing is, is getting those ideas, not just getting kids excited about those, those ideas, but getting those ideas to stick and then to build them in a framework that those students can then uh, increase their confidence and so on. So I've never been a teacher, really. Uh, but that's kind of what I would be very, very happy doing for the rest of my life. If um, if let's say I completely stop writing or I, I completely stop getting involved in other things. Got it. Superb. And you've kind of mentioned there that you you do, do some writing, you, you've been involved in TV. Um, I'm interested, Simon, what, what does an average working day look like for you these days? So, so now the average working day is, is focused around um, some maths projects that I'm working on. So um, it's the start of term, um, projects I'm running, and we'll maybe talk about them a bit later. Um, we've got nine new schools joining us. We're launching a, a maths competition for sixth formers in a couple of weeks. Uh, we've got an online website, which again, we'll talk all about all of this later on. But, but now, you know, I would say more than half my time is on maths education. And then I've, uh, I've got a charity called Good Thinking. And Good Thinking runs mm. the maths education projects, but it also runs projects to do with um, promoting science and challenging pseudoscience. Um, it, it's, it's what some people might call a, a sceptical organisation, uh, an organisation that promotes scepticism. And not from a kind of climate change scepticism point of view. That, to me, is more like climate denial. You know, we should ask questions about climate change. We should challenge it. We should find the weaknesses in our understanding. That's what real scepticism is, is about. Um, climate sceptics, I often find, have a political agenda um, or a very weak scientific foundation. So it's about applying scientific thinking to everything from the climate to health to Wi-Fi safety to, you know, you name it, evidence based policy and government and so on. Got it. That, that sounds superb. That sounds we'll, we'll put a link up to that in the show notes, because that, that's something that the kid, uh, as well as the general public, kids need to be aware of as well. Right. And, and there's potential there for using their mathematical knowledge, whether it's to do with probability or statistics, sample sizes, bias, all that kind of stuff. It's it's it's, it's as relevant to, to school age students as it is to the general public. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, I think the, the better understanding that students have of mathematics and risk and probability and the laws of science and also how science works. How do you establish if something is a good scientific model or not? How do you establish if, if a drug is effective um, and safe? Um, all of those questions are really important. And then the second thing I think, and it's possibly, I would say it's as important um, is knowing who to trust. Um, because, you know, I'm a physicist by training. My understanding of vaccinations is pretty poor. Uh, my understanding of loads of areas of science is pretty poor. So then the question is, when I'm getting all this information thrown at me, which I can't really assess in real time, how do I make my judgments? Um, so when it comes to things like health, probably my, my first, you know, the first person I turn to is my GP. And I'd see what they said. And then I would maybe look at the NHS website and then I might, um, you know, look at what the learned academy say and so on. So I would build this framework. Are those my trusted sources of information um, when 
when subjects get technically very complicated, or are they going to be Google and Facebook, um, page six of the Daily Mail and so on? Well, you know, probably not the latter <laughs> examples. And, and, and I think if people can find the, the people to trust, then they'll end up making the right decisions. That doesn't mean we, we're, we're kind of passive sheep, uh, because identifying the good sources of information is a, is a very active process. It involves real thinking. Um, and I think that's important as well, in addition to those skills we talked about earlier, about knowing about the laws of science and risk and probability and, and maths and so on. Got it. Superb. Well, um, I, I want to talk now about your writing, Simon, if that's all right, before we dive into your, your projects, because that's where I first came across uh, your work and it was really, inspi- re- really inspired by it. And um, I'm going to kind of build up to, to my favourite book of yours a, a little bit later on. But I've read three of the four that, that we're going to speak about here. And the first, and I absolutely adore this book, is 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 the code book. But before we go into that, I just wanted to know um, how... How do you go about actually choosing what to write about? Is it just areas that interest you or do people ask you to write about them? How do you choose the subjects of what you what you write about? So, so um, in chronological order, because uh, uh, the Fermat Stars theorem, which we'll talk about a bit later, um, I made a documentary for the BBC about that. And um, having made the documentary and, and not being able to get everything into that film, um, I thought this would be a great book. I'd never written a book before, but I just thought if, if someone's going to write a book about maths, this is a great topic. Yes. Um, the key thing is just finding a brilliant topic. If you can do that, um, then, then you're away. Writing is so much easier if you have a good subject, if you have a story with a beginning, a middle and an end and so on. Um, and then the code book um, that came out of the fact that um, in Fermat's Last Theorem, I'd written a lot about Alan Turing and I'd referenced the Enigma machine, and that got me thinking about codes and code breaking. And when I was at Tomorrow's World, I used to work at Tomorrow's World at the BBC, I had lots of stories about cryptography uh, in the age of the internet you know, that was emerging. Um, but they never got on Tomorrow's World because cryptography is not very visual. But those ideas, I thought, well, again, that would be a great book. You know, how do we get from the Enigma to where we are today in the age of the internet when information security is so much import- more important than ever before? Um, and, and so, again, and nobody had written about cryptography for about 40 years. Um, there was a great book called The Code Breakers by David Kahn, published in the late 60s. So nobody had written about it. Great stories. And I was interested in it. And I thought other people would be interested in it. Uh, and then Big Bang, which is a book about cosmology. I remember being on a plane and, and the person next to me not really knowing much about the Big Bang theory. <laughs> And I thought, gosh, you know, we're one of the very few generations, well, the first generation of, of humans um, to have a theory of the universe, to have a theory about how our, our universe emerged and evolved into, into, the, into the, the, the universe we have today. And, and that story of how we got that Big Bang model should be celebrated and we should all know about it. So the idea of the book was to tell people what is the Big Bang theory, who came up with it and how do we know it's true? Um, Trick or Treatment, which is a book about alternative medicine and, and I think largely challenging alternative medicine. There are a few alternative therapies that are effective. And, you know, I co-authored it with a doctor called Professor Edzard Ernst. Um, that just came out of anger, <laughs> out of frustration at the, the, the inaccuracies in, in, in all across the media about how wonderful Reiki is or how miraculous acupuncture is and so on. Um, and then the most recent book was The Simpsons and the Maths book, which came out of just 
realizing there's so much math in the simpsons and that's great i love maths i love the simpsons i love futurama what a shocking surprising topic for a book and then i was away <laughs> so th these stories they're very 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 hard to find and um so when you find one then you just grab it with both hands and and and, and, and you make the most of it. it then i don't have like a pile of eight stories and think gosh which book shall i write today um, you just have to wait and wait and wait until the idea comes along. Got it. Fantastic. Now we we could easily do an interview on it on each of these books and and make it last for hours and hours and hours. But I'm I'm thinking we'll just take a little kind of trip through them all and perhaps you could tease us with with your kind of favourite story from each. So I, I wonder about the, co the the code book, Simon. What um, what do people need to know about that? But what was one of your favourite stories that that you came across whilst researching and writing that book? Right. So so. So the stories um, that the, the code book was interesting because um, the science of secrecy um, is quite a secret science. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if I break your code, I don't want to tell the whole world about it because then you'll change your code. Yes, so a yes. lot of it has to do with, with, with um, so, so for example, two of my favorite stories, I'll just take it too briefly. One was about Charles Babbage. Because he broke something called the Visionaire Cipher, which was uh, known as Le Chiffre Indechiffrable, the, the unbreakable code. And it was unbroken for centuries. And Babbage broke it. Now, some people may be familiar today with Charles Babbage as the inventor of the, the difference engine and the pioneer of computing. Um, <clears throat> but nobody would have thought about him as a code breaker because his code breaking work was top secret. And so it was a pleasure to be able to write about that in the code book. And then the same uh, a similar story occurred later in the book. Um, when we buy things online, whenever we do transactions online, um, often if they're encrypted, they're encrypted by something called public key uh, cryptography, which is an amazing technology. It's revolutionized the world. And the maths behind it is pretty comprehensible and, and pretty clever. Uh, now, that, now the, when I started writing that book, the code book, everybody said it was invented in America by some brilliant mathematicians, uh, a, a trio uh, based in California and actually another geo based in Stanford. And they were the fathers of public key cryptography and they were lauded and rightfully so. And they're still heroes of cryptography. But what emerged while I was writing the book was that. It had also been discovered at GCHQ in Cheltenham in Britain, and it was discovered by three people. Um, and because they worked for GCHQ, it was classified. And for 25 years, they got no credit for their work. They were a bit like the co-breakers in, in Bletchley Park. Uh, for decades and decades, they got no credit for their work. And so um, the most senior figure uh, sadly had died by the time uh, the news became public. But I was able to interview uh, one of them, Clifford Cox, um, who was able to take me through that story of their discovery step by step by step. Uh, he told me that he came home from work one day um, and figured out how to make public key cryptography work. But when you're at home, if you work for GCHQ, you're forbidden to write down anything on paper that relates to your work. OK, because it's top secret. You can't put anything down on paper. So he had to do the whole mathematical architecture in his head. Um, and and he, he built this mathematical framework in his head. 
and he went to sleep praying that he wouldn't forget it by the time he woke up. <laughs> and he dashed into work and then he wrote it all down and told his colleagues. And as I say, if, if people know about public key cryptography, they'll know how important it is. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it was a secret for many, many years. And it's always great when you write a book to be able to reveal some secrets that people just didn't know about before. absolutely and what i love about the code book as well is i'm always trying to find ways to get get maths interesting maths into my lessons without forcing it and i've spoke about this on the podcast over the last few years the 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 terrible way i used to bring in so-called real life maths with ladders leaning against walls for pythagoras and all the all this kind of nonsense but with the code book you, you can bring in prime numbers you can bring in product of prime factors and and show interesting exciting applications and 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 that's what i love if, if that makes sense it's, it shows a real kind of need and purpose for something that school-aged children can, can really grasp if that makes sense simon yeah no I, I think in a way that's when i started going into schools um, frequently it was to talk about cryptography because codes um, are such a great way of showing the application of maths um I, i'm lucky enough to have a real enigma machine and uh, james grime um used to work with me on, on something called the Enigma Project, uh, based in Cambridge. Um, and he, we, he used to go to schools and talk about cryptography and so on. And he still does that, in fact. He still does that. And you can visit his website uh, and, and book him. And he comes in and he demonstrates a real enigma. And he shows how mathematics can change history. Um, you know, that's at the scale of World War Two and the complex Enigma machine. But also you can, you know, you can have an additive cipher. So let's say I number all the letters from 1 to 26. And my additive cipher is I'm going to add 2. So if A is 1, 1 plus 2 is 3, 3 is C. So A becomes C. Um, D D is the fourth letter, add 2, I get 6, D becomes F. That's that's all well and good. Um, But what about if I have a multiplicative cipher? What about if I multiply every letter by 3? So A, 3 times 1 is 3, that's C. Uh, B, three times two is six. B becomes F. Um, Now, the problem becomes, what happens if I multiply by two? What happens if I multiply by six? What happens if I multiply by a a prime number? What happens if I multiply by a number that's a factor of 26 or not a factor of 26? What happens if I multiply um, M, which is the 13th letter, by three? I get 39. How do I work out what letter is number 39? So you've got modular arithmetic. So you can... You can explore all of these things, um, and, they're, and they're, they're appropriate for various ages, depending on what sort of topics you want to get into. Superb. And I can't let you move on from the code book without briefly just telling my, my favourite story, Simon. I flipping love this. That, that about the Bible code and, and the predictions that it makes. Could, could you just briefly talk about that? Yeah, so, so the idea is that, that, that um, I don't really talk about this in the code book. I sometimes talk about it when I'm lecturing, but... The Bible code, the idea was you take all the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, um, the basis for the Bible, I suppose, and you, you, you look for coded messages. And the way you do this is you start somewhere in the Hebrew text and you jump, let's say, four letters and four letters and four letters and makes no sense. So you start somewhere else and you jump 94 letters and 94 letters and 94 letters and what happens is that sometimes you get words, not just words, but messages, not just messages, but predictions that have come true. Things like Newton and gravity appear next to each other. 
things like um, President Kennedy in Dallas uh, assassinate appear next to each other. Um, so there are these real predictions in the Bible and they're undeniable, except if you apply the same algorithm to any large book. So somebody's applied it to Moby Dick, start somewhere, jump every 94 letters or start somewhere else, jump every 53 letters. And you also get predictions about JFK and the rise of Hitler and everything else. Um, and the mathematical foundation for this is that books are just very big. And if you allow yourself to start anywhere and allow yourself to jump anywhere, then you will find anything. So it's, it's really a demonstration of the law of large numbers, I suppose. And um, yeah, no, there are some unbelievable predictions in Moby Dick, which are really all um, entirely um, coincidental. And they're, they're just there because... We're talking about billions upon billions of permutations. Uh, yeah, and I, I just love it because whenever I, t I, I describe that to students, that they can't believe it because they think, well, well, th this must be fact. This this must be either predictive power of the Bible or, or whatever book it is. But you can you can demonstrate it with books, or you can just do that simple thing of, of finding their phone number in um, the digits of pi, and it's it's the yeah. same thing. They, they think that they're special, they they're unique because their phone number's in there, but but everyone's numbers in there and stuff. It's just kids are blown away by and and the public generally by large data sets. The fact that you can find stuff in there do, do you know what i mean yeah absolutely no it's 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 only when you start doing some maths that you appreciate how small groups of objects can have vast uh vast permutations vast possibilities in terms of permutations and that's when freaky things can happen <laughs> absolutely well i, I want to move on to, to to the big bang now and um, and again i ju just wonder you've kind of give a bit of a backstory um about why you chose to write it but have you got a particular favorite story that came from your research into into the big bang theory um again i suppose this was a story that i i didn't find this story um but but it was new to me when i read about it um and um, the, the story is about um, astronomers pioneered photography in a very big way because um, you want to take a photograph of a comet. You want to take a photograph of a, of a, a galaxy or, or a star. And, and these things are very, very faint. So words like positive, I think even snapshot, um, various words came out of astronomy into the public realm and they really pushed the technology and once they could take these photos at night the astronomers i guess would would have a snooze during the day and they would have other people analyze the photos now in harvard they had a group of women doing this and um, they were known as computers so a computer we now think of a computer as a machine that does calculations originally a computer was just a person who did calculations so there were these uh, women in Harvard um, who would look at these photographs and measure the positions of the stars, the brightness of the stars, the colours of the stars. Um, they were known as Pickering's Harem, because I think it was Henry Pickering was the director of the observatory. So they were treated in a fairly kind of um, patronising way. But in, in, in science, if you have the data, you can do the science, you can do the, the, the analysis and the research. So these women didn't just write down the numbers. They really thought about what they were looking at. And there were some amazing women in this group who made, you know, who, who made astonishing discoveries. My favorite is a woman called Henrietta Levitt, who was profoundly deaf. 
And the idea is that because she was profoundly deaf, uh, she had more acute vision. And so she could see things in the photos that other people couldn't see. And she noticed about a, a star that was varying in brightness. And it's a star uh, called a Cepheid variable. And she plotted the variation of this brightness over time, which you would never be able to see with the naked eye. You could barely see it when, it was t when photographs were taken. Um, but she could see it and she could plot it. And she realized that the, the, the brightness of the star was proportional. Uh, made, there was a log relationship between the brightness of the star and the period of the variation. Did it vary, vary over a day or over a week or over a month? The period and the brightness were absolutely linked. And, and that's a, 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 I was going to say a stellar discovery, but that's a bad <laughs> Nice. <laughs> a good choice of word. But, but it, so if, if you know the period and the period tells you the brightness, and if you know the brightness, the brightness tells you the period, you can look at any Cepheid anywhere in the sky, see how quickly it varies. You then know how bright it really is. You can see how bright it appears to be. And then you can work out the distance. And so she created this incredible ladder for measuring cosmic distance scales or yardstick, sorry, for, for measuring scales across the universe. And without that, we wouldn't really have been able to discover that the Big Bang had really happened. Because once you know the distances to the, the, the galaxies, you can then uh, build Hubble's law. And from Hubble's law, you can begin to build a time for the origin of the universe. So, um yeah, I, I just love this story of this remarkable group of women. And Henrietta was just one of them uh, who, who made these astonishing discoveries. That's f fantastic. That. And as I say, I've, I've read three of the four books we're discussing. The Big Bang is the one I haven't. And I think that's my my aversion to the physics side of things, Simon. But I'm going to I'm going to correct that. I'm going I'm, I'm to read that very, very soon. It sounds right. absolutely fascinating. Um, I want to talk about my favourite now. I can't hold off any longer. I want to talk about Fermat's Last Theorem. And you mentioned that the film came before the book. So if we just, just touch very briefly on, on the film. For anybody else that hasn't seen it, um, I'll put a link up because it's available um, publicly now, isn't it? On um, There's a BBC iPlayer um, link to it that I'll, I'll link to in the show notes. And I've shown this to so many students. And yes. my favourite bit... I know you'll have people listening from overseas. And if they can't access the BBC iPlayer, there are loads of versions on Google Video or YouTube as well. So um, the iPlayer is the highest quality one, but there are various other ones around. So don't don't let that stop you if you can't get into the BBC site. Fantastic, great point. Um, and the the bit, I mean, it's it's a bit of a, I suppose it's a bit of an obvious thing to say, but the start of it, Simon, when you've you've got Andrew Wiles's office and it's a flipping mess, and then you're interviewing him. Um, and he starts to describe about the moment he, he finally discovered um, the, what, what the proof is. He finally saw it and he describes it so beautifully. And, and then he begins to break down because he realizes essentially his, his professional life has peaked. I think he says something along the lines of he'll, he'll never achieve anything as good as this again. And he starts to well up and he can't finish his, his sentence. And like I, I've shown this to, to pretty ropey 15 and 16 year old <laughs> like pretty dodgy kids who will openly say they hate maths and they see this guy and he's your stereotypical mathematician he's your geeky he's your glasses your curly hair and all that kind of stuff and you can't help but be moved by it because it's such a the, the passion the dedication the love of maths is there so i just wanted to ask what were you in the room when that was happening or, or just what was it what was it like when you saw that for the first time were you moved by it did you realize this is actually something special we're witnessing here 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's uh, you know, and, and we put it at the start of the documentary because it went out Monday evening, eight o'clock. You know, people have got lots to, to choose to watch. And so we wanted to hook them in with that idea of somebody being so emotional about something. It's not clear why he's moved. It's not clear what he's working on. It's not even clear he's a mathematician. But the idea is that people look at it and they say, well, whatever journey he's been on, I want to share it with him as well. And um, I think what happened before that was um, we'd spent five days, five mornings filming with Andrew Wiles. So in the morning, we'd film Andrew in his office and then we'd film somebody else. And the next morning, we'd film him walking by the river and we'd film somebody else. So I think by the fifth day, which is when this happened, um, he knew us really well. Because in this tiny office, it's not just me. Um, uh, I, I was working very closely with a guy called David Lynch. I was working with, uh, uh, with a cameraman, Joe Vitaliano. We had a sound uh, person. We had uh, uh, probably somebody from the press office. Um, probably my assistant was there as well. So we, 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 it's a very crowded office. But he knew us and he knew that we cared about his story. We'd heard all of his story. We were, we were really on side with him. And I think the fact that he knew us all meant that he was willing to open up. And then I think also being in his office, in that chair, at the desk where he made that breakthrough meant that it all became too much for him. Um, and, and as you say, he had to turn away from the camera and couldn't finish his sentence. Um, and I think it's a mixture of emotions. It, it's, I think it's partly about thinking what lies ahead. Um, you know, how do you do, how do you surpass something that's so great as this? Maybe you never will. But I think it's also about his childhood dream. It's about the adventure that he went on. It's about the, the pain because there was a point at which it looked like the whole proof had fallen apart. It was about the people that doubted him. You know, when the proof fell apart, people thought he was crazy. Um, so I think it's a whole mixture of emotions. And, and at that point, being in the right place with people who he was willing to share his story with meant that it all just came out on camera. And, and um, ah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's great. You know, I still meet people today um, who are now professors. Uh, now, that film went out, oh, gosh, I'm thinking 18, really? Hang on. <laughs> I'm trying to think when it, it it must have gone out in about the late 80s. So um, let's let's say it was 88. Is that possible? Yeah. No, it would be it would be late 80s. Uh, 88 would be late 80s. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, listen, let's say it's been 20, 25 years. Um, you know, there are people now who watch that film when they were teenagers who are now themselves professors, and and they come and say hello to me and they say they saw that film when they were a kid and, and it helped them realize that they were going to be a mathematician and for a filmmaker or a writer that's kind of the best thing you can you can ever hope to hear absolutely so it's absolutely a wonderful piece of film that simon um i, I just, yeah, just to... one other thing oh, yeah, when, please. Was, when, when we tried to persuade him to to make the film because initially he was quite reluctant because he said um you know he'd had so much media attention and <clears throat> he's quite a shy diffident chap um and one of the things we said to him was that you know, I don't know about you, but I remember as a teenager, our math teacher showing us Fermat's Last Theorem and saying, have a go at this. Yes. The Fermat's Last Theorem inspired generations of mathematicians as an ultimate challenge, a simple ultimate challenge. 
Uh, and I said, you know, you, you've kind of taken that away from everybody now. It's gone. But your story could help replace it. Your story could be what inspires people instead. And so I think partly based on that, he said, yeah, OK, we'll make the film. And, and I think hopefully um, you know, his story has inspired a new generation of, of, of mathematicians and hopefully more and more in the future. Absolutely. Um, and there's a couple of questions I just wanted to ask you, and I've been meaning to ask you for years uh, about Fermat's last theorem, uh, Simon, having done all the research that you have into it. And um, the first is, do you reckon Fermat had really proved it? So, so Fermat wrote this note. He said, I had a tremendous proof. And, um, and based on that, that note, that's where the story starts. Everybody's trying to rediscover Fermat's proof. Now, Wiles' proof is not Fermat's proof. Wiles' proof is far too complicated. So did Fermat have a proof? Um, he might have done. It is possible that there is a classical, clever 17th century proof out there waiting to be found. Um, I think it's unlikely, but we can't rule it out. Um, I think it's much more likely that he did have a proof, but it was flawed. It was, it, there was a blunder in there somewhere. Uh, maybe this blunders the wrong word. There was a subtle, subtle error. And because Fermat just worked at home, he wasn't at a university, he wasn't part of a, a huge uh, community, there wasn't somebody that could look at his work and say, oh, look, I'm sorry, Pierre, you've made a mistake here, let's fix it. Um, so I, I think he just made a, an innocuous mistake and, yeah, that's it, and then just carried on and made his bold claim and then moved on to the next uh, question he was trying to answer. Uh, I think that's probably the best guess at what happened. Yeah, I, I think I think I agree. And um, my, my other question I wanted wanted to ask you is that the beauty of Fermat's last theorems it's so simple to explain, and and any student can understand it, any person can, can understand it, and especially if they've done Pythagoras or whatever, it seems to follow naturally, and you can you can try it, and there's there's loads of near misses and stuff like that. But I wonder the thing I've always struggled with is trying to explain to students who have hooked in with Fermat's last theorem how Andrew Wiles actually proved it. And I don't have a flipping, I can't follow it at all. So I mean, it's, it's well above me, but is there, is there any way to kind of explain the essence of Wiles proof in a way that school age students can, can understand? Um, I think, so when I made the film, we had a few little stepping stones <coughs> about what the proof was about. And when I wrote the book, I added in some more detail uh, and then I wrote an article with Ken Ribbit for Scientific American. We added in a bit more technical detail. Um, but to be honest, for me, it's still way above my head. Uh, uh, there's a point at which I hit a brick wall. Um, but there are always stepping stones. There's always some level that, that, that you, can, you can talk about depending on who the audience is. So what, what I would say if I was trying to explain it now is that um, what Wiles actually proved was something completely different. He, he looked at something called the Taniyama-Shimura conjecture. Um, so what the Taniyama-Shimura conjecture said was that there were two wildly different areas of maths, um, something called modular forms and something called elliptic curves. Now, elliptic curves are pretty easy to explain. They're uh, a set of, I think, Diophantine equations. It's a long time since I've spoken about this, but there are these things called elliptic curves, and they have solutions and um, there are these other things called modular forms that have certain structures and they're highly symmetrical and they're in a completely different area of maths. What the Taniyama Shimura conjecture says is that these two objects, these two sets of objects are related. 
that for every elliptic curve, there's a modular form that can be built from it in a way. And for every modular form, there's an elliptic curve that you could you could relate it to. And to me, that's a bit like, you know, I, I tie things back to physics. So in physics, you know, every electric uh, current gives off a, a magnetic field. Every magnetic field can create an electric current. For years, people thought magnetism and electricity were two different things. And now we unify them together. And, and what Tadayama and Shimura were saying is that we should unify modular forms and elliptic curves. That they, that, that's what they were arguing. No. Now, Wiles proved that actually that, that, that is the case. They are linked. Now, what has that got to do with Fermat's last theorem? In his proof, what, 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 what became apparent, um, and this involves somebody else's work, was that if Taniyama and Shimura were true, no, ah, sorry, let me start somewhere else. If Fermat was false, if, if, it, if, if, um, if you could um, find an nth power plus an nth power that equal an nth power, if you had these numbers, if you had A, B, C, and an N, you could build a modular form that could never, ever be elliptical, uh, could never give rise to an elliptic curve. But if you've got an elliptic curve, if every elliptic curve is modular, then these A, B, C, and N can't exist. And if A, B, C, and N can't exist, then Fermat's last theorem must be true. Um, that's not particularly clear, is it? <laughs> no, I'll tell you what, you've, that's the best job I've, I've heard, Simon. That is superb. That I think I'm going to just record that audio and just play that to the kids, I think. That is, uh, right. that is, that is very nicely explained. It's it, it, it essentially, I, I mean, in, 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 in one sentence, um, if Fermat's last theorem were to be true... Sorry, if, if, there, if Fermat's last theorem was false, then there would be numbers that would force another conjecture to be false, the Taniyama Shimura conjecture, but Wiles proved that that is actually true. So therefore, reversing the logic means that Fermat's last theorem has to be true as well. Got it. F fantastic. And um, my final question, I'll let you take a breather after that one, Simon, because that was some effort to explain that. I love that. Um, last question before we move on to, to The Simpsons. Um, you spoke about how um, when you when you filmed Andrew for that, that, that kind of the thing that became the opening scene of the documentary, um, it was the realisation or, or the, the kind of uh, apprehension of what was going to come next in his career. Have you have you followed um, Andrew's career? Have you have you spoke to him any time um, recently? Do you, do you know what he's up to and, and how what what his life's been like after the proof of Fermat's last theorem? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the future is only a part of it, and maybe even a small part of it. I think much of it was just joyous emotion of what he'd done and pride and, and so on. So I think I think I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say he was sad at that point. I don't think it's a mo moment of sadness. I, I think it's a, a much more complex emotion than that. Um, but yeah, so, so immediately afterwards, um, his proof ran to 120 pages and involved all sorts of new techniques. So people would come to Princeton to learn about the proof, to understand the proof, to learn these two, two new techniques, to look at where else they could be applied and the implications of his proof. So I think for, for two, three, four, five years, that was probably what dominated his life. Um, I've then met him a few times. Um, I met him in Norway uh, not long ago, uh, probably two years ago, when he uh, won the Arbel Prize uh, for mathematics, which I think is a million uh, euros, extraordinary, extraordinarily prestigious prize. Um, <coughs> I met him last year on the anniversary of his proof at the Newton Institute, and I interviewed him at the Newton Institute where he made the announcement, which was tremendous in, in, in front of a, a great, very prestigious audience of mathematicians. 
Um, so we, we've, we've kept in touch. We, we meet each other from time to time. He's now based back in England. He became a, a professor at um, Oxford uh, in the Andrew Wiles building. <laughs> nice. How important you have to be to get that honour. Um, and, and, you know, he, when he was working on Fermat's Last Theorem, um, he didn't tell anybody what he was doing. So for seven years, he worked in complete secrecy. And so he may be working on something very, very, very big. But um, in typical Andrew Wiles style, I don't think we'll, we'll know until suddenly he announces it to the world. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Superb. Nice. I just had pictures of him doing kind of the uh, after dinner circuit or maybe appearing on Celebrity <laughs> Love Island or something like that. But he's, he's still he hard was, at work. One of the questions I asked him when I interviewed him last year in, in Cambridge, um, because it, it lodged in my memory. And, and, I, and, I, and, and I couldn't believe it was true, even though I mentioned it a few times in a few talks. Um, but I said, look, this is, this is in my memory. Is it true that after you proved Fermat's last theorem, that Gap asked you to endorse their new range of menswear? <laughs> and he said it was true. <laughs> so, yes, it wasn't a weird thought. It actually was true. Flipping heck. Fantastic. Uh, well, let's talk briefly about uh, your most recent book, Simpsons. Uh, I absolutely love it. And, I, and I've been lucky enough to see you speak about this a couple of times now. Um, I guess just a simple question, um, Simon. What, what's your favourite piece of maths that appears in, in The Simpsons? Well, the, my favourite bit is, is the bit that kind of got me, um, made me aware of how much maths is in The Simpsons. So, you know, I've been watching it for years and I watched this episode called The Wizard of Evergreen Terrace, where Homer wants to become an inventor. And um, he's in his basement and uh, there's a blackboard and he's squiggling stuff on the blackboard. And um, on this blackboard, if you blink, you miss it. But there is a line all about topology. There's a line all about the mass, the density of the universe. There's a line about the mass of the Higgs boson, quite a complicated equation. And then there's a line about Fermat's last theorem. <laughs> and, and that made me think, wow, gosh, there's somebody on this show who really loves maths. And uh, I contacted one of the writers, David X. Cohen, um, and I said, uh, and, and he just emailed me back. You know, I just... It was out of the blue. It was great that, that uh, this incredibly brilliant comedy writer uh, gave me the time of day. Uh, and he said, no, no, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I'm a physics graduate and I've written maths papers and I've had papers published in mathematical journals. And and I like to sometimes get maths in the show. And I said, OK, that's great. And then he said, actually, there's quite a few of us here who do this. Um, and it turned out there are maybe a dozen writers on the team who have a connection to maths some of them have phds some of them started phds and didn't finish uh, some of them have master's degrees one of them was a professor at yale these are heavyweight mathematicians and they're not mathematicians now they're comedy writers but they still love maths and the way they they express that love of maths is by hiding these equations or references in the show when nobody's looking except when you do look closely enough you spot them superb it's fantastic and like you said there's just oh in fact the um your favorite number appears right the the 1729 that that, that pops up doesn't it at some point yeah that pops up in futurama so if people watch futurama they'll know that a lot of the writers on the simpsons um ended up working on futurama they're also mathematicians and uh, so 1729 is the number of um Zach Brannigan's spaceship, uh, the Nimbus, 
It's also a number of a universe which uh, Fry jumps out of. It's also, I think it's um, the serial number of Bender. He gets a Christmas card or a birthday card one year. And again, what the writers are doing, if you don't know, it's just 1729. If you do know, then you realise the writers are kind of paying their respects to a manager and, uh, and showing that you know, they love their maths and they love their mathematicians. Absolutely. Superb. And just before we move on to uh, the, the wonderful projects that you're working on, just just a quick reflection, Simon, on on stories in general, because what I love about your book is the, the full of stories. If, if Fermat's last theorem, I mean, let's put it this way, Fermat's last theorem could be a pretty dull book if you're opening up with just equation after equation after <laughs> equation. But it's the stories behind it. Um, and I'm a little bit obsessed with stories and trying to bring more stories into my lesson and the whole narrative structure. Um, but wh- why do you think stories are so powerful? Um, um, in the context of maths, um, <coughs> um, I suppose I, I'm only interested in writing books that, that are read by hundreds of thousands of people. Um, I'm, I'm not interested in writing scholarly works that are read by a few dozen people no matter how important they are, that's just not who I am or what I do. Uh, I want to write books that, that either get people inspired to be mathematicians or people who hated math earlier, maybe it'll switch them on to math in their later, later on in their life. Now, the way I'm going to do that is by mixing the maths with a story, uh, a story of passion or intrigue or tragedy or heroism, um, or lots of little stories that express those emotions and adventures. Um, so stories, you know, that's why we switch on and watch um, you know, Big Brother. You know, it's a story that goes on for weeks and weeks. It's why we watch EastEnders. It's why we go and watch Mission Impossible. Um, these are stories. And, and, you know, if you can get stories into math books, great. But the math really has to be there. You know, I, I think in all of my books, I've always, I've, I've never skimped on the maths. Um, but I've tried to embed it with stories that are relevant and interesting and exciting. And that's why the, the stories, are, the books I write are so few and far between, you know, five books in 25 years, because it kind of takes about five years to find a good story uh, or something that's worth writing about. And any, um, any sneak preview? Are you working on any book at the moment, Simon? So, so not really. Um, and two reasons. One is... Um, I haven't had any good ideas. Um, I haven't had a good idea for a very, very long time. <laughs> um, secondly, um, I'm not sure people read books as much as they used to. Um, I certainly don't. I, I read blogs. I listen to podcasts. Um, you know, I, I get my maths and other information much more online because it's free and it's a very high quality. You know, it's you know, there are terrific blogs. There are, there's humor that never existed before. There are animation. It's a whole world out there, which means that I just have less time to read books. And I guess other people have less time to read books. And if I write something, I'm less confident now that it would be read as widely as my previous books. Um, and then the third thing is, as well as not having ideas for books, um, I have a few ideas about education. And so that's really my passion at the moment. And so I don't really have time to write any books because I'm really working hard on the, the math education projects. 
And I'll tell you what, Simon, as the, as the perfect storyteller that you are, you've teed us up perfectly there to talk about these, <laughs> these projects, seamlessly done that. I love Funny that. You that. <laughs> so I'll hand this over to you. I'm, I'm kind of calling it under an umbrella term of developing excellence in mathematics. And, and from what I believe and what I've heard you talk about, there's kind of three aspects to this. So do you want to just take us through them one at a time and I'll, I'll be annoyingly interrupting you at yeah, the various sure. points. So, so the first project, very briefly, I'll talk, I'll talk about it. It's called Who Wants to Be a Mathematician? Um, <coughs> which, which the way I've just said it sounds really negative. Who wants to be a mathematician? <laughs> That's not the way you're supposed to say it. You're supposed to say, who wants to be a mathematician? <laughs> it's an American competition. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the name, but it's what it's called. And, and more importantly than its name, it's a great competition. Um, and I was lucky enough to attend the final in America two or three years ago. And it's an online competition. Round one happens online. If you do really well, you get to round two. If you do really well, you get invited to a live final in America in January with um, $5,000 for the winning student and $5,000 for their school. So I emailed them and said, um, could could we take part in the UK? Um, uh, uh, you know, because it's all online, it's very easy for our students to take part. And they said, yes, that's absolutely fine. Uh, we had about a thousand students taking part a couple of years ago. Um, I should say this project is aimed at sick formers. It's pretty challenging questions. Um, and then last year we took part again. Um, and this year we had about 2000 students taking part. And our winner um, got to go to America to compete in the grand final. Nice. Uh, and he didn't win. He got to the semifinals, but he won a thousand dollars for himself and a thousand dollars for his school, uh, Tapton School in Sheffield. And um, we're running it again this year. In fact, we'll be starting in about a week or two. Um, the best way to get involved, if you if you've got sit formers, uh, it's free. Um, and one is pretty easy, I think. Uh, round two gets more challenging, but it's it's a really good competition for kids to get involved in and. and um, the, the best way to get here more about it, probably follow me on Twitter. I'm sing S I N G A. Um, or if you want to email, um, gosh, who should we email? Can we put a link on your site? Of course. Yeah. You send me the details yes. and people can go to the show notes. Yeah, it's called who wants to be a mathematician. Uh, there's an American version. If people are Googling, they want their find, they want to find their way to us in the UK. Um, yeah. Um, we'll we'll give you an email uh, to, to put on your website. That'd be great. Thanks. That sounds a superb project. I like the sound of that one. And, and what else have you got for us, Simon? So, so the other one um, is one um, that we've got 13 schools running it this year. Um, last year we had uh, four schools. Um, it's called the Top Top Set Maths Project. And um, some people will hate it. Some people <laughs> will quite like it. I'm not sure. Um, my feeling is that math education works pretty well for most students at the moment. I think it doesn't work well if you're really good at maths. If math is your passion, if you're enthusiastic about it, um, if you really want to become a computer scientist, if you want to go and do physics at Warwick, if you want to go and do maths at Bristol, if you want to get to a top university and really excel and build your future on mathematics, I think our current education system doesn't work. I think GCSE math is a bit too easy. Um, and there are lots of great math teachers who do a great job and, and despite all things, will, will do the best things for their students, come what may. But the system, as far as I can see, is not designed for excellence. And so 
what I suggested to four schools going back a couple of years was that as well as having a top set, have a top, top set. Take kids when they've mastered everything in primary. So we're talking about year seven. Um, when they come into your, your school at year seven, if they're strong, if they've mastered everything and they're committed and keen, put them in a top, top set. So not just a top set, which is the top 25 percent, maybe, but in the top 10 percent or maybe even less. And, and those kids are then stretched year after year after year. So year seven isn't about consolidating what happened at primary school. It's about it's about going much further. And year eight is about going further still. And and the idea is that once they get to a level, they've been challenged every year. They know what challenging math is about and they actually love the challenging math stuff, um, as opposed to actually finding things really quite easy. And then finding it hard to cope with hard math to get to sit for. And for me, this is about allowing more kids to access excellence. Um, it, you know, it, it's about allowing more kids to become brilliant at maths. And the results so far, I think, are quite astonishing. Um, when it comes to things like the Junior Maths Challenge, which is how we're measuring progress, increasing their results by kind of, um, I would say, on average, about 60 70 percent. So where they were getting 10 silver medals, uh, silver certificates, they're now getting more like 17. So this is a, you know, a big leap um, where they were getting sort of one kangaroo gold. They're getting two kangaroo golds and so on. So. Um, so, yeah, this year we're increasing up to 13 schools. You know, if we can show this works and maybe it won't, maybe it'll all fall apart very soon. But if we can if we can show that this works and it's cost effective, then my vision is we'd have 500 or 1000 schools running top, top sets and we'd be creating three, four, five, six thousand more excellent mathematicians every year, more than we currently do, as well as several thousand students who just benefited enormously from that experience as well. I like it. And Love just, it or hate it. Tell me what you well, yeah, well, I have two observations and then, and then a question for you, Simon. And the first observation is, and I, th I think you made this uh, BCME when I first heard you speak about this, and, and it really rang true for me. And that's that in many top sets in schools, there's actually a great range of mathematical um, ability or, or achievement in there. It's not the case that these are all your kind of elite mathematicians who have all this foundational knowledge who you can just stretch and challenge. Uh, often, if you've got 25, 28 kids in that top set and you look at the kind of bottom, I know that's not the right phrase, but but the kind of lowest achieving 10 of them, they're going to need a lot of support. Um, and that's going to possibly, um, and certainly I found this uh, the case, take my time away from really stretching and challenging and putting as much time as I need to into, into my other students. And what tends to happen in these top sets, and I'll probably get slaughtered for, for this as well, is that a lot of the teacher's time goes to kind of supporting the, the bottom half and almost with the assumption that the top half can kind of take care of themselves. But I always feel that I'm kind of doing a disservice to those students, because if I could actually dedicate more time to that top half, I could really stretch them, really challenge them, really ignite them with the passion. So that, that's my first observation, that actually the, the range of ability and achievement in top sets is possibly broader than, than people think. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I just I just make two points. One is that you know, if you look at kind of a, a normal distribution, say, ability, um, the middle set will have a, a quite tight clumping of students that are pretty much of a similar standard. 
But because of a long tail at the top and the bottom, your ability range in your top set is going to be much wider. Um, and then secondly, I'd say, you know, what you said has encapsulated everything about what we're trying to do. It's, it's, we can look at the curriculum. We can look at all sorts of different things. But for me, it's about saying if you've got kids who can really accelerate and move forward quickly, we're doing them an enormous disservice if we're if we're holding them back because they've mastered everything at GCSE. And actually, there are some kids in the group who are really struggling. Um, you know, those kids, we need to really, really help as well. But it shouldn't be uh, by sacrificing the potential of the others. Absolutely. And my second observation comes from an interview I did with with Alison Kittle and Charlie Gilderdale from, from Enrich. And, and Alison made the point there that <laughs> as a mathematician at school, she really struggled the first year of A-level because it was the first year she'd been challenged and she wasn't used to struggling. She wasn't used to finding maths hard. And she felt certainly that first term, or I think she even spoke about the first half of the year, she really, really struggled and almost began to dislike maths. And flipping like Alison loves maths more than anyone on the planet that, that I've ever met but because she kind of cruised through top sets from year 7 to year 11 GCSE was an absolute breeze suddenly like the jump from GCSE to A level in maths is a big one and all students find it hard but particularly those ones who breezed through math and maths and never been challenged that can lead to some severe problems and confidence can drop uh, your effort levels can go down particularly if you're not used to asking for help and stuff from the teacher because you think it's a sign of weakness perhaps you kind of close into your yourself and and all kinds of problems can come from that so i like this idea of bringing in challenge earlier almost to ease that transition from from gcse to a level if, if that makes sense I, absolutely again you've, you've nailed it you've absolutely nailed it it's it's you know if, if children are going to be challenged and grow then they, they they need to be yeah they need to be stretched year after year after year and, and they we can't give them a sense of complacency and overconfidence. It, it, it has to start early and then continue. Again, I mean, at the very beginning, I said, you know, I was never the best at maths and I struggled. Um, and I struggled because I was pretty good at maths, but um, I was being challenged every year. I went to a grammar school. OK, so, um, you know, a top set of a grammar school is maybe different. And so in a top set, I really was challenged. Um, in a way, this is saying, you know, you can create that sort of experience. You don't need to have grammar schools in, in necessarily. You don't need to have them. You don't need to have this divisiveness. You don't need to split people off at 11. You can create that, that group within a, 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 a non-selective school. Um, and there's fluidity. You know, just because you're in there at year seven or you don't get in there at year seven, you can move in after Christmas uh, or you can move in at the end of the year. Um, I think once you get to year nine, it does become tricky to then move into a top, top set if you're coming from outside. But there is much more fluidity than just, say, a crude 11 plus or, or grammar school system would allow for. Absolutely. And my question um, is, and it's going to be the one that listeners are screaming um, at us as, as we listen to this, that this sounds absolutely brilliant, but how are schools going to afford it with, with tight budgets and all that kind of stuff? So what, what's the reply to that, Simon? So I would say... Um, uh, to me, it's about cost effectiveness. Um, the, I think there's a lot of money being put into STEM. We need more mathematicians. We need more computer scientists. And, and there's so much money going to this in so many different ways, whether it's Saturday masterclasses, whether it's gifted and talented summer schools, whether it's other programs. 
And for me, the most cost effective way to teach children is in a school with teachers who do it day after day after day. It shouldn't just be an add on that happens in the summer. It needs to be part of their day to day work. So I think it's, it's more effective and more cost effective if it's built into the school structure. So I would then say that, you know, some of the money that's being put into increasing the number of STEM graduates should be put into these kind of programs. They should be put into schools rather than put into summer projects and so on. And then right now what we're doing is we're saying um, we're funding half of the cost. So good thinking with the 13 schools we're working with, we're funding half of the cost of having that extra classroom and that extra teacher and schools are having to fund the rest of it, um, which means, you know, it, it is a, a stretch on their budgets. Um, but I think there are huge positives. You know, they are saying to parents, you know, if your kid is a great musician, we'll support that. If they're a great sports person, we'll support that. If they're a really confident mathematician with ambition, we can support that as well. And so I think it, 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 it's delivering on what schools need to be doing. And hopefully we're doing it in a cost effective way. Got it. And I assume that you'll there's a link where people can follow to find out more about that that I can put in the show notes. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, yes. Good Thinking is the charity again. And it's a project. It's called Top Top Set. We're, we're, we're maybe looking for one or two more schools um, in northern England. Uh, just at the moment, we've got schools in the southwest and the southeast. And we'd like to spread ourselves a bit. But but for the next two years, we really just want to gather the data, work with the schools we've got um, and show whether or not this really works and then hopefully springboard after that. So we're not looking for too many schools to join us at all. But but if you're a school, uh, we're talking to a couple of schools already um, sort of further out from London and then at the other end of the country, then that would be great to hear from you. Um, but yes, well, yeah, that good thinking is the place to start. Superb. And, and even if schools don't get involved directly in this project, I'm sure people will be interested to follow how the results come through. And, and just, it's just food for thought, thinking whether that's a model that they can um, adopt more in their school. So, right. when, when we met at Big Me, um, there were a couple of one teacher was saying, well, we do something similar to this from year nine upwards, but maybe we can extend it down to year eight anyway. Um, other teachers were saying, look, you know, we've got two top sets running in parallel because we've got two bands mm. in our school we're going to think about redoing the timetable so that um you know they're doing maths at the same time but then we've got a top top we, we can then have a top top set we don't have to have two top sets we can have uh, we, you know we, we can the, the gradations can be finer so yeah schools don't need to be part of our project to do this at all and, and hopefully uh, more and more will do it anyway got it superb which which brings us nicely to to the final kind of uh strand in this developing excellence and that's the the parallel project so tell us about that please simon yeah so um so this was built really for our top top set students i, I think the part you know one of the ways you achieve excellence is by doing more maths you know you've got to do you know, more and more maths and practice those skills and be stretched and rather than um we thought we'd create a central resource so parallel is a website and every thursday we launch a puzzle sheet and it's pretty short. I think it would take about 15 minutes. We have one for year seven, one for year eight, and one for year nine. And the maths, you know, there'll typically be a, a UKMT question in there. There'll typically be a, sort of a, a thought provoking maths video, maybe something for number file. And then maybe something else um, that's odd and interesting, but very mathematical. Um, 
And so the idea is it, it's something these kids can look at every weekend. They get a score. Um, they're not supposed to get it all right. It, as it goes back to this idea of stuff being challenging and not easy. So if they only get 50 percent, that's absolutely fine. Look at the answer sheets. Try and figure out what's going wrong. Uh, figure out what bit of math you can learn. Um, and it's every week. We're going to run throughout the whole year. We ran it last year uh, for six months and we had a really good response. Um, some parents are doing it at home with their kids. Um, our top set students are doing it. Our top, top set students are doing it with our schools. But any, any school can sign up. Any teacher can sign up. It's all entirely free. The best way to use it, I'd say the best way to use it is for a teacher to say, probably this is going to be for a top set because it's weekend math. It's extra homework. So the kids are going to have to be keen. And it may not even be for the entire top set. As you were saying, there may be some who would be more dedicated. Um, so you say to these kids, right, you're going to do this every week. It's actually part of your homework now. And they do it every week. Uh, it shouldn't be a kind of a flash in the pan that happens in four weeks and then disappears. It should be done routinely every single week. Uh, it's more automatically marked by us. The answer sheets are obviously generated by us. So it's very little for the teachers to have to do. Um, the students should link to their teachers. If a teacher creates an account, they'll get a teacher code. Student links up to the teacher code. You can see that your students are doing it and you can see their scores. Um, so on a Monday, if there's one particularly tricky question, you might want to have a look at it. But otherwise, I think a teacher would mainly want to see, are my students doing it or are they not bothering to do it? Because they really ought to be doing it if it's, if it's you know, part of your weekly routine. And um, we're launching... This year, we launched today, I think, depending what day this goes out. Um, but if you go to the website, which is parallel.org.uk, parallel.org.uk, if you're a teacher, click on teacher, create an account. If you're a student, click on student, create an account. And you can just dive in and do your first parallelogram, as we call them. <laughs> uh, uh, it's kind of like a telegram that we send out once a week. Uh, and it's parallel because it doesn't cross over with what's happening in the classroom. The idea is whatever you're doing in class that day or that week or that term, this is parallel. You can still do it. You know enough maths to be able to have a go or we'll explain the maths so you can do it. I like it. And again, just a, an observation and a question um, about this. My observation is what I really like about it, Simon, is that there's a load of kind of automated marking maths homework tools around at the moment. I mean, I'm part of one with diagnostic questions. There's Hegarty maths. There's, there's loads of my maths. There's loads of fantastic things. But what I like about this is it's, it's not kind of your just skill-based, short-answered stuff. Here's a question. You do an answer. Here's another question. You do an answer. There's the, there's videos with it. There's activities. There's articles to read and so on. It's, it's not trying to replace kind of these, these other online homeworks. This is something in addition to it for a certain type of student. Would that be fair? Yeah, I, I think it's really quirky. I think it's weird. Uh, sometimes there'll be a philosophy video just because that broadens kids' horizons and just makes them think about the world in a, in a different way. Sometimes we'll look at a, 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 a mathematician who's in the headlines. Um, I just saw an article last week about, yesterday on the BBC website, about um, um, the women engineers behind some of the Indian space launches. And so we'll probably do a little story or question based around that. Um, so I think it's interesting. I kind of think, you know, I, I, I think it's, yeah, I kind of think it's the thing I wish I could have done when I was uh, 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, so um, 
Yeah, and I, and I, I tell you what, I have great fun creating them. Um, they take up quite a bit of my time, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't kind of palm this job off onto anybody else because <laughs> I love creating them. And um, and, and we, we had tremendous feedback last year, so um, I'm hoping that this year we're the other thing we're doing. We're launching badges as well, so people, you know, as they, you know, if they get eighty percent, they get eighty points. When they get the first hundred points, they get a badge of a of a mathematician or a geometric shape or, or something. So we're kind of trying to instill that into it as well. And along the way, there'll be some prizes and stuff for, for various kids. We haven't figured that out yet, but it's all free. I think it's all really great. And so I would definitely encourage people to have a look at it. Um, and, and so I'd rather that a few kids did it every week for the whole year that an entire year group did it for four weeks and then it fizzled out. That, I think that's the way to look at it. Is it's, it's only for a few kids, maybe five, maybe 10, maybe 20 or 30, but every single week is the way to go. Absolutely. And, and, and two quick questions on it. First, just for the benefit of listeners, am I right in saying, Simon, that it's not like week one, we're going to be doing fractions of an amount. Week two, we're going to be doing solving linear equations. The, the topics are actually a lot kind of broader and, and different to that. Can you just give us a flavour of some of the things that are covered um, in certain weeks? Yeah, it's it's kind of random. It's, it's kind of random. So we look at happy numbers this week, I think, for our year sevens. Uh, what is a happy number? You know, work out some things about happy numbers. Uh, then we may have a video from the Wizard of Oz, I think, when the Scarecrow misquotes Pythagoras' theorem. <laughs> and so we say, well, hang on, I think he says uh, the square roots of any side of an isosceles triangle adds up to the other two sides or something. So we, we ask questions about how he got it wrong, which is a fairly trivial thing to, to do. And then there's a, a, a junior math challenge question, which may be well be about um, uh, working at averages or something. So it's, you know, we'll, typically we just throw in uh, um, a junior math challenge question that's about the right level for our students. Um, and we're doing three at the moment. So as I say, it's only three questions. So I think it's 10 to 15 minutes work. Um, I don't think it feels like a homework. I don't think it looks like a homework sheet. I think students will treat it in a different way that hopefully they'll be hungry for it and look forward to it. Only three questions, only 10, 15 minutes. After Christmas, we'll probably go to four questions. After Easter, maybe five questions. So they will get a bit longer and more challenging as the year progresses. Got it. I mean, my final question is, I'm just put, putting my kind of busy teacher hat on here thinking, oh, God, it's the start of the year. Here's another thing. I'm going to set it up and then it's going to take me ages each week to monitor and so on. What, what's the kind of teacher workload? Is it the kind of thing that a teacher can set up and if they need to just let kids kind of work away themselves on it? Or does it need regular teacher input um, throughout the year? I mean, I don't know about any other projects that are out there. I don't, I, I'm not a teacher, so I don't use any of the others. Uh, but I can't imagine anything being easier than what we're doing. Um, if if you do pick just a, a group, 5, 10, 20, it'll be easier to monitor because it'll be a smaller group. You just need to get them set up. It's really easy to set up. It's, it's literally three questions, I think. And then you just let them go. And just, I would say, it's literally a five-minute look um, at, 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 the, at the data on a Monday morning and, and just saying, uh, look, Fred and Mary, you didn't do it this weekend, did you? Is there any reason for that? You know, next weekend, make sure you do it and also just make sure you, you finish the ones that you should have done this week as well. That's it. Um, you know, you don't need to go through the questions. You don't need to read the parallelograms. Um, I, I think it's as light touch as it could possibly be. 
Sounds good. That'll be music to people's ears, that. And we'll put links to all those projects um, in the show notes. Okay, Simon. So we are approaching the end of the interview and now it's time for you to do a little bit of reflecting. So my first question is, what piece of research has most significantly influenced your thinking? Um, So this is probably something that um, everybody probably has an opinion about it and everybody knows about it. But for me, it was quite a revelation a couple of years ago when I started hearing people talk about growth mindsets. Um, So I've got two sons and, and one of them is sort of about eight or nine and the other was a bit younger, but it's one of those things I, I've, I've tried to think about their their interests and, and how they think about the world and how I talk to them about different ideas. And so, um, yeah, no, I think this, the whole growth mindset thing was a real eye opener for me that, that, you know, kids shouldn't be saying I'm clever at maths. Um, it's not an innate property of their brains, but you can be clever at maths or you can be good at maths if you work hard. Yeah. Um, it's not that you failed, you just haven't succeeded yet. You know, part of the process of succeeding is failure and learning from that. So, yeah, no, growth, growth mindset is something that sort of changed the way I see the world. And, and what do you do differently with, with your kids now, Simon? Is it, is it in that language that you use with them? Yeah, I mean, it's almost brainwashing, to be honest, because at a very <laughs> early age, I've kind of just said, you know, you know doing different, di- difficult things is good for you and it's good for you not because it makes your brain bigger because our brains don't just get bigger but it makes our brain squigglier Uh, and so this idea of getting a really squiggly brain because you're thinking about difficult problems or you know if i'm if i'm showing my son a problem and he just it it just makes no rhyme or reason to him at all that that doesn't mean he walks away it means he actually thinks about it or asks some questions or comes up with some vague ideas or has a, a guess and so, yeah, I think when I when I talk to him about maths or anything else, um, you know, I, I th- and, I, and I, I'm, I'm you know very proud of him that he seems to have sort of got that idea that he enjoys talking about things that he doesn't necessarily understand. Um, so yeah, it, it's and, and it's great, and it, it's it's great going through all these mathematical ideas and physics ideas and experiments, and and showing them again to a young mind, which I guess is what the whole thrill of being a teacher is all about. Absolutely. Superb, superb answer. Um, second question for you, Simon. What's an example of something important you've changed your mind about? So um, so science communication, by science, I mean maths and engineering and everything. Um, but um, I've not changed. So science communication is important. We need to talk to the we need to talk to the public. We need to explain to them what science is and how it's important. And we need to listen to them as well. And we need to inspire kids to be you know, keen on maths and science and everything. But my fear at the moment is that it's all about inspiration. And if we're inspiring kids to be mathematicians, but we're not giving them the tools to actually do it, then we're failing them. And that's kind of where the whole top, top set thing comes in. Um, You know, there are lots of other people inspiring kids to be mathematicians. Hopefully within a top, top set framework, we're giving them the skills to then actually go and be those mathematicians. So I'm less interested in inspiring kids to be mathematicians. And, 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 you know, bear in mind, that's what all my books have been about. It's about inspiring people to think math is wonderful. I think that's great. But if that's all we're doing, then then we're not creating the mathematicians. In fact, it's almost a bit cruel to say, go off and be a brilliant mathematician. But if we don't give them that pathway, then how are they ever going to get there? 
I'll tell you what, it's a brilliant answer that, Simon. And it reminds me, I put this quote in, in my, my book that, that came out recently, um, and it links back to your answer on growth mindsets. I'll never forget, one of my one of my year nines just came out of an assembly uh, on growth mindset. And I said, how, how was it? And he said, it's it's not too easy to have a growth mindset when I keep doing shit on tests, sir. And it's, it's the same kind of thing, right? Like, it's all well and good giving kids all these messages. But if they don't have that, and for me, it comes down to success. Kids have to taste success, not just be told they can be successful, but they have to experience that success. And if we can do that by imparting knowledge and giving them support, then that success inspires and motivates and you get into that virtuous circle. But for me, the success is a fundamental part of that um, and it needs to come before these inspiring words, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and that's what, I mean, within the Top Top Set project, we're really big on the junior math challenge because one, it's a way of measuring whether we're being successful. But two, if we can get 30 or 40 more kids to get a bronze certificate, gosh, they've got recognition on a national maths competition. And that must boost their confidence in how they see themselves, no end. Um, and, and you say that, that's then the start of their journey. Absolutely. Superb. And final question for me before I hand over to you for your big three. And that is, what do you wish you'd known when you first started out that you know now? Um, the, the importance of feedback, I think, is, is um, you know, I, I just think whenever I whenever I do something, uh, I, I always ask people, tell me what I'm getting wrong. And I think that's really important to identify people to give you feedback. One, they should be competent enough to give you feedback. Um, two, you need to give them free reign to be honest and, and respect their opinion um, and, and give them that license to you know, say, you know, you have permission to say things that, that weren't great. Um, you know, p- people in general are very reluctant to give feedback, I find. So I remember giving a talk once and, uh, and I came off stage and they said, I said, how was that? And they said, oh, it was fine. It's great. Next person went up, gave a talk and they did exactly what I'd done, which is the spotlight was so bright. They took one step to the left. And they were in complete darkness and nobody could see them. And nobody could have seen me either. But nobody told me. So uh, I think actively seeking out feedback is incredibly important. And, and then listening to, I suppose. Sometimes I do that. That's interesting. Very hard to do sometimes. But yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. Simon. Superb. Well, uh, it's time for you now for your big three. And I'll put links to these in the show notes, along with links to everything we, we've talked about in this interview. So these are three websites or blog posts or whatever you want that you would direct our listeners towards. Um, yeah, well, a, a couple of them are humor-based, uh, comic-based. One is XKCD, um, the great Stickman cartoons, and the other is uh, SNBC Comics or SNBC-Comics.com, Saturday morning breakfast cereal uh, cartoon strips. Um, they're, they're 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 hysterically funny. They're wonderfully nerdy, um, and and I think it's it's a fantastic way of how these people have found, I say, a niche on the internet, but. They've got millions of the followers and millions of people who read and watch and, and love their stuff every day. So if I can steer a few more people in their direction and make their lives happier, I'm very happy to do that. Uh, that's the first two. And then the third one is um, Tim Harford, uh, timharford.com. Uh, Tim has a website, blog, and is the host of More or Less on BT Radio 4. Uh, he's an economist by training, but he obviously loves his maths and um yeah, I, I just I just find his, his ideas intriguing and interesting. And if you follow him on Twitter, not only are his ideas interesting and intriguing, but all the people he'll point you to will be equally uh, fascinating uh, in the world of, of, of economics. 
Geez, there, that's a, we haven't had any of those three before, Simon. That's a superb selection here for your big three. Um, well, well that, that brings us to the end of the interview. So I just want to thank you for, for two things, really. Um, firstly, for taking <coughs> taking the time to speak to us this morning. Oh, sorry, I'll just cough one sec. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, yeah, just want to thank you for two things. Firstly, for, for taking the time to speak to us this morning. It's It's been fascinating, um, Simon. It really, really has. And I, I know listeners will, will get loads out of this. But secondly, just on a, on a personal, slightly corny note, um, just thank you for, for kind of inspiring me over the years. I don't mean to kind of make you sound old here with this, but I, but I, but I read, <laughs> I read, you, I read Fermat's last theorem many, many years ago, and the same with the code book. And it, it inspired me um, to kind of want to be a teacher, to keep teaching and, and and it goes back to these stories to to find the stories within our subject that that show students and the general public just how exciting it is because maths often gets a bad name like science often gets a bad name seen as boring just for the geeks just for the nerds it's just number crunching equations no relevance or, and anything like that but there's flipping loads of amazing stories in there and you, your books really help kind of bring that to life so i wanted to think thank you for that and then also for these new projects they, these sound fascinating and it's it's a brave thing to do simon in a way because the big kind of pressure these days is on being inclusive if you do something it's got to be for everybody every single student but what i like about this is and i don't know if, if if i'm kind of putting words into your mouth here but you're almost coming out and saying no actually this is for a certain type of student certain uh, set or group of students and this is to push them this is to engage them to challenge them and so on and that's something that i think is lacking and something that that is, is definitely needed so for all of those things thank you very much thank you i mean thank you for one taking the time to just talk at length about these ideas it's wonderful to have a, a chance to really talk at length about maths and uh books and, and education projects and, and thanks for the podcast um <clears throat> the, the only thing i say about the other thing is is and one other thing i would say is that in running these projects um we're running them on a shoestring and the amount of support i've had from teachers the number of people willing to give up their time um the guy who designs our parallel website is a guy um, called uh, Philip Legner, who, who has a website called Mathigon, uh, which I'd encourage people to go and see. He's given up a huge amount of his time to make our project work. And he's not the only one. Many, many other people in the maths community have been so generous. Um, and the other thing about inclusivity, I mean, the one thing I would say is I think what we're trying to it is uh, our project's not for everyone. But I think what we're doing is we're getting many, many more people to become excellent at math. So my parents never went to university. My, nobody in my family's ever studied science or math. My mum, unfortunately, can't read or write. Uh, but, you know, I know that my math education allowed me to do what I've been able to do in the future. And I think what our projects will do is allow more children to access the world of maths at the highest level and become the pioneers and the innovators and the technologists of the future. So there you have it. There was my interview with Simon Singh. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. I tell you what, what a wonderful guest Simon was. And it just got me thinking, I'm so flipping lucky to do this podcast. I'm, I'm essentially working my way through my bucket list of ideal interviewees. I'm just interviewing all my heroes. So we've got Simon there. In the past, I've spoke to Dylan William, Doug Lemov, the Bjorks, Daisy Christodoulou. The, the list goes on. And in fact, I'm not sure who else is left. 
I mean, I've got Hannah Fry coming on the podcast next month, which is absolutely ridiculous. I cannot wait for that one. I guess all that's left is uh, Daniel Willingham, but I'm, I'm too nervous. I'm, I'm trying to pluck up courage to ask Dan to come on the show. And then the only other one, I suppose, is, is Natalie Portman. And that's not strictly for educational reasons. And I think I run the risk of a divorce from my wife if Natalie ever does come on the show. But I hear she's a big fan anyway. But yeah, what to reflect on from that interview with Simon? Oh, I should say, by the way, if the sound sounds a bit funny for, for this takeaway, I'm actually recording this in a hotel in Wokingham, which is a new area of the country for me and very nice so far. But anyway, what to reflect on from that interview? Well, there, there are two things really I want to focus on. And um, the first is a bit of a recurring theme, and that's the power of stories. And um, I touched upon this um, in my book Um, the two... Couple, couple of um, kind of sources of inspiration for me for this. First is Dan Willingham, who's the kind of source of inspiration for many things for me, and um, explains how stories, and this is the, probably the wrong phrase, but are cognitively accessible for students. The narrative structure, the three-part structure of a story, it's easier for students to take in. It becomes more memorable. Um, and I read a wonderful book um, by the, one of the uh, creators of the TED Talks about how some of the best and most engaging TED Talks, again, follow that narrative of a story. And I spoke to uh, Jeremy Hodgson um, about this as well, um, and he made the point, which I'd never thought of before, that problem solving, um, in a sense, is a story that we tell to students. And just listening to Simon tell those stories there from his book just hooked and engaged me. But a couple of things. So first, it's brilliant if we can bring the story structure into our lessons. And I talk about this in the book, perhaps the three-act math structure from Dan Mayer is a great one, or even just a starter to pose a problem and tease that we're gonna learn the techniques to solve that problem later in the lesson is fantastic. But we've gotta be careful, um, and Simon made this point here, that the story can't be everything. The maths has got to be the key point. And, and Dan Willingham makes this point himself, that if students get tied into the surface structure of the story, or the surface structure of the problem, and they cling on to that, and that's the thing that becomes memorable, then there's a chance that they're not attending to the maths that's underneath it and they're not thinking hard about the maths and that's the thing that's going to make a difference at the end of the day. So it's kind of a, it's, it's a, a tricky balancing act, trying to get that engaging aspect of the story but making sure that maths is deeply embedded within the story to make sure students are ultimately thinking about that. And I think Simon's masterful about doing that in his book and that's something that I've, I've got to try and take note of when I'm introducing this story structure and um, to my lessons but I tell you what is, isn't Fermat's last theorem kind of the perfect story it's like a Hollywood thriller it's firstly it's so simple to understand and I love that about it you can explain it to students I've explained it to primary school students everyone can understand it and it sounds so easy to kind of grapple with and try and you get close and so on so you've got that it's easy to understand You've got one man's passion, Andrew Wiles, and dedication throughout the years, hooked into this story from being a child and, and kind of dedicated his professional life to solving it. You've got success when he has that breakthrough. And then you've got the flipping twist in the tale, the Hollywood twist, when it turns out there's a fundamental flaw in his proof and it looks like it's all gonna fall apart. And then he rises like a phoenix from the flame and tastes success again. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. And I love telling it to students because as I say, you can introduce it in a way that they understand. So the power of stories, that's something I'm gonna be thinking a lot more of um, over the course of this year. And the second thing, and I guess this was kind of the main part of the interview, was, was about Simon's initiative of um, inspiring high achievers. And 
I'm just going to fess up here, and I'm, I'm doing this all the time on the podcast these days, um, about mistakes I've made with high achievers in the past. Um, because I've been, I've been lucky enough to teach a wide range of, of sets. I've always taught in schools that, that have sets. I've had bottom set sevens. I've had year 13 further mathematicians applying for Oxbridge. Um, but I'll tell you what, there's, there's two fundamental mistakes I've made, I think, now I come to reflect on it, um, in terms of teaching high achievers. The first is, and I mentioned this in the interview with Simon, um, I've kind of been under the assumption that I can just let them get on with it um, and they can just, they'll be all right, sort themselves out. So perhaps I'll give them um, the same work to do as everybody else, but when they finish it, here's a problem, perhaps from Enrich, here's an investigation, here's a probing question to think about. But essentially, and I feel terrible saying this, but that's the end of my involvement. The end of my, the, my involvement is to provide them with the extension work. And it's like, okay, you crack on with that. And then I'm back with the rest of the class, helping them through the fundamentals and helping students out who are struggling. And that makes logical sense because you've kind of got to play to the majority. But I tell you what, thinking about it, I feel terrible now. And I, I can see those students in my head and they're, they're the keen, the passionate, the mathematicians who are going to rise to the top, who are going to change the world. And I'm almost doing them a disservice by letting them get on with it. Um, on their own without sufficient support from me. That's the first mistake. Um, and the second mistake is, and, and again, I don't know if anyone else can relate to this, but any time I've tried to push on my high achieving students, I've done so without structure. So I had a year 11 class, guys, probably three years ago now. I talk about uh, these a lot in the book. It's the class with, with Josie in it, who's one of the, the, the brightest kids I've ever taught, far better mathematician than me. And there was a few kids um, in that class. Maybe it was a top set, but as we've spoke about in the interview, often there's a wide range of ability and there's a flipping wide range in, the, in this class. But there's about five or six kids who the, the work I was needing to give to everyone else to bring them up to speed um, was, was too simple for them. Um, and they needed practice of it. And there's, uh, um, I'm a great believer in not assuming anything, not assuming knowledge and kids benefiting from practice. But I needed to give them more. And at the same time, I wanted to hook them in in maths. So what I started doing was um, was homework. Um, I used to set them a number file video to watch. And if you haven't watched the number file videos, I mean, stop listening to me babbling on here and just, just go Google them on YouTube. There's some of the best things I've ever seen in my life there. And so what I used to do, set one of these number file videos, they're only kind of five minutes, seven minutes long, um, for kids to watch. And then we talk about them in the lesson. And for about the first two to three weeks, it was brilliant this, I'd set it over the weekend and Monday we'd have a discussion about it. But then what inevitably happened was that other things got in the way. We had mock exams to prepare for, um, I'd mark the homework and there was problems in it and we had to deal with that. And what got pushed to the side was this enrichment, this extension, this discussion about the number file videos. And, and I also see this with maths clubs. Um, you, you, again, the amount of time that, that uh, schools, um, and it tends to be somebody within a maths department says, right, this year I'm gonna set up a maths club um, and kids can come to it at lunchtime and so on. How many of those um, are still going at Christmas or, uh, or at Easter? Um, and I know I've tried in the past to set them up and I've and I failed. And, and often the problem is it's been quite a lot of work for me to come up with that structure, to come up with the resources, to come up with the activities to give to these kids. And that's why, I, for both of these reasons, I absolutely love the idea of this parallel project. Because as Simon says, once you set it up, essentially the hard work is done for you. And if you can spare five to 10 minutes each week just to read over the kids' submissions, and as Simon says, kind of chivy along those who are perhaps falling behind it, then 
that that's the structure that's the resources that's the materials it's covering a whole range of mathematics there's all kinds of stuff going on there and i think that's what i've been crying out for and if i could jump in a time machine and go back to that year 11 classroom three years ago and in fact it's probably better if i take that class and, and move them forward in time three years so the parallel project exists i mean this is getting a bit complicated now but if i could use the parallel project with that class i think it'd be perfect because those five or six kids i could set them off, um, off on it and other kids could join if they wanted to and then we could have that discussion either at a break time once a week or just stay behind for five minutes just at lunch at the end of the, um, at the end of one lesson. And they've got the structure, they've got the materials and I'm not letting them down by allowing other things to get in the way. And, and I'm going to end a little bit of a controversial note um, on this one. And this I'll probably get slated for this, but here's what I've assumed in the past. Some of those kids, especially when it was the old GCSE that went up to A star, I knew they were going to get A star. Like this Josie, flipping heck. Um, I could have just talked to her rubbish all year, and I, I tried my best sometimes, and she would have got A star there. I added zero to her GCSE grade. Um, it's a, it's, and there's quite a few kids I've taught in the past like that. It's a little bit different now with the grade nine. It's a, it's a lot harder to get. But you know, you, you've all taught kids who they're going to get grade nines, and very little input is needed from you to make sure you tip them over the line. And in the past, I've, it's kind of like a numbers game, and we're under pressure for targets and all that. So we think, okay, well, this is certainly what I thought. Let's just lead those kids. They're going to be absolutely fine. They're going to get their A star. They're going to get those grade nines. I need to help bump those kids up from grade six to grade seven or grade seven to grade eight. I need to get as many of those kids as possible. And again, it's just not fair, right? It's not fair on those students who, again, it sounds corny, but they're the ones who are going to change the world in the future. So I just love the idea of these projects that are there that can support teachers in supporting our their, our highest achieving students. And the final thing I'll end with before I shut up is the point that, that Simon made about inspiration. And I thought this was a really interesting one. Regular listeners to this podcast will know I'm obsessed with motivation and I'm firmly of the belief that success is needed to motivate students. It doesn't go the other way around. Motivation doesn't necessarily lead to success. And it was interesting to see Simon saying that inspiration isn't enough. It's not enough just to inspire students. We need to provide the resources and materials to give them the taste of that success, to give them that motivation. It's all well and good telling them stories about these mathematicians and saying how great these kids can be. But here now with the Parallel Project and some of Simon's other things, and then think back to my interview with Enrich, think back to my interview with Jamie Frost, both focused on high achieving students. We, with these kind of resources, it's not just inspiring kids, it's giving them the foundations to feel successful that can then feed into that inspiration, which can feed into that success, and it can just grow and grow and grow and grow. Anyway, that's just about it for me now. I'm actually going to go out and see if I can find a bit of food in, in Wokingham. So all that remains for me to do is to thank my very special guest, Mr. Simon Singh. Um, absolutely, in fact, Dr. Simon Singh, I should say. Um, absolutely wonderful interview. It's a privilege to, to speak to him. I'm, I'm so, so lucky. Um, to thank podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've, you've heard throughout the show. Uh, to thank the podcast sponsors, White Rose Maths. Um, and if you want to sponsor the podcast, just get in touch, mrbartonmaths at gmail.com. 
www.thelawyerspodcast.com and we can talk business. And finally, a massive thank you to you, the loyal listeners. Um, thank you so much for listening to this and your thousands and thousands for helping spread the word and telling your colleagues about it. And if you listen to this at the start of the school year, which is when I'm recording this, I really hope the school year goes well. I've got a good feeling about this year. It's an exciting time to be teaching. People are talking and debating the research. There's some phenomenal resources out there, particularly for maths teachers. Um, it's a tough job, but it's a really, really, really great time to be involved in education. Anyway, I best shut up now. My tummy's rumbling. You take care of yourselves. Bye for now. <laughs>